Alright, Father, I thank you for this chance to get together to, uh, to study your word um, and also um, in a unique opportunity today to, uh, to study some false teachers to, uh, to be able to recognize false teaching when it creeps up. Uh, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom, understanding of these theological concepts, understanding about the objective truth that you have given us about yourself. Uh, and as we know you, as we understand you, God, I pray that we would be able to recognize counterfeits well. I pray that we would be people who love the truth, who uh, are willing to lovingly fight for the truth, and, um, and who continually proclaim your gospel until you come. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so today we're discussing the topics of eminence and transcendence. Uh, is there anybody that could give me a brief uh, description of what eminence is as we're jumping into this? It's okay if not, I'm not going to give you a hard time. Anybody? Eminence? How about... Take a step. I think it might have something to do with kind of like about to happen or on the horizon or on its way. This is good. Yeah, there's, we, we think of the, like that we think of something as imminent. We talk about Christ's return being imminent as it's, it's kind of happening. There's also gets the, the sense that it's kind of the, there's an idea of presence in some sense with that. That it's kind of, it's here, it's, you know, there's something close by about it. This kind of the idea we're getting. Transcendence. Anybody have kind of a, a, a brief description of transcendence? Come on, Jeff. Above. Very good. Doesn't necessarily have a limit. Is above. All right. This is interesting. The idea of eminence that God is both here and involved in the world, and then the idea that He is something wholly other. He is transcendent. He abo- He is above. The, uh, the understanding between these two ideas uh, has caused lots of mistakes in theology. Uh, people have misunderstood eminence, misunderstood tra- transcendence, and it has caused, uh, let's just face it, a lot of problems. Uh, and I want to I submit something to you right now. Your view of the God-world-human relation will radically affect many other major doctrines because it's, the, it's God's relationship with the universe that affects the doctrine of Christ. It affects the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. It affects creation itself. Everything comes back to, is God powerful enough to create the world and intervene in it, to reveal Himself objectively in it, and so forth? Okay? Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm going to be going through here. I've given you some rather detailed notes, so uh, feel free. I'm probably not going to read every detail in them. Some of the things I'm going to let you just, we're just going to explain and gloss over. But anyway, understanding major heretical view, views related to these kind of issues is going to help us give a clear understanding so when little things creep up, we're going to be able to notice them. Um, because as we're going to see, even in the evangelical church, there are a lot of um, little pieces of false teaching that are, that are popping up, and unfortunately it's happening more and more and more in recent years. Eminence refers to God's immediate and personal involvement in the creation. Samuel, you had mentioned the whole idea that like it's, it's here, it's coming, it's close. Uh, it specifically has to do with his relationship with men. Eminence. It's this idea that God is here in the universe. Closeness. He is actively involved in his creation, revealing himself through miracles, including the incarnation of Christ, providence, and divine sustenance. Uh, I I gave a little description between miracles and providence, because a lot of times we hear the phrase said that, like, well, you know, the sunrise is a miracle. You know, and there's a sense in which it's very 
majestic. God has done something amazing, and there was the miracle of the creation was something amazing. But He is sustaining the universe to operate as it should. The idea of a miracle is something quite different, where He takes action in this universe in a in a, in a very unique way that maybe uh, is contrast to the norm of creation. But anyway, that's a side note. We're going to move on to talk about eminence. Yeah. What's more difficult? With God, he's, he's all-powerful, so I don't know that there's a distinction. Um, for us, we might say that the, the miracle would be more difficult. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would say he's omnipotent, so... Well, there's a sense in which he's powerful enough that either one has got non-disability. But I've often read some of the Bible scholars that say that you know, we think of miracles as something unique to God, but we fail to understand that really the greatest power in this process where it takes all the events, history, all the occurrences of everything that still works about it, and good. It's power over all things. Hmm. The Right, we see, yeah, that's definitely an exciting thing. The idea of providence, because he's planning, there's so much intricate detail in how every little thing comes together. It's awesome. I have to say, prior to providence, see, I don't know that he's necessarily altering it, but it alters what it appears to be our plan. I mean, because I think, and this is the issue, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit, because that was part of the issue that was brought up. Um, by, by critics like David Hume, they would say, well, if God is all-powerful and he knows everything about the future, then why would he need miracles? So why wouldn't he just set up everything to work out well? Why would he ever need to part the Red Sea? Couldn't he just set it up so there wouldn't be a sea there when the, uh, when the, you know, when the Israelites are, gonna, are coming to that point? Well, you'd say that, but even the miracle is part of his plan in a sense. So some would say that, well, he's breaking his plan. I don't think at all. Um, I see what you mean, though, that it's, he's doing something special. Definitely doing something special. Let's talk about this. Um, what we're going to do first is, in, in each of these topics, is, is deal with some of the false teaching on it, and where it came from, and then deal with the biblical view. Okay, so that you can kind of say, oh, ooh, this doesn't work and that doesn't work. Oh, but wait a minute, biblical view always works out. Isaac Newton. Here's 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 an issue with with Isaac Newton. Uh, we tend to set him up as this great Christian leader sometimes, and 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 uh, mind you, Isaac Newton meant well. Um, was a brilliant physicist, did some good things, and probably brought us um, to some good places as far as just taking steps towards understanding the universe. But Isaac Newton made some radical mistakes that radically limited knowledge of God. Uh, this is what he did. He kind of came up with this idea that the universe did not have its own kind of order to it. You know, we, we see the universe as having order. We talk about space and time and it operating on a continuum. There's order there. And he believed that the universe uh, was like this kind of no order that it had inherently. He believed that God had to impose order on it from the outside, much like a bucket holds water together. You know how water takes the shape of the bucket when it's in the bucket, right? So he actually, de he actually described God as the divinum sensorium, the infinite receptacle that holds the universe together and pushes rationality or imposes it from the outside onto the universe. So then the universe itself does not have order, but the divinum sensorium has to, from the outside, push it in. Now, what kind of a problem could this cause when we think about the incarnation, when we think about God becoming human? How does, how does this idea that God is a bucket or a box affect that? I think we just said that if he's forcing his order onto the subject matter, 
pushing in on it to make it mold into what we want. That's not allowing for us to have our choice in the matter. I mean, it's our choice to follow. So if his hand was actually in the bucket, you can mold from internal because it's really helping us choose. If you follow those, because you said it, pushes it, molds it into a form, there would be no choice of that object that would stay as you mold it. So it's the choice of what's inside. Well, it plays in a little more, you could say that, but it all is, he's dealing more with the idea of the universe and just being able to operate it all. But that plays in. There, there's an issue there with the, um, with the uh, how it affects humanity. But I'll, specifically, let's think about it in, in relation to, the, to Christ. That he doesn't know what's going to happen in this world. He's just on the outside pushing some type of... Force. That he's not sure what's going to happen, or he's, he's not in control. Just on the outside is some type of force, but he's not active within it. Well, and, and then specifically, when we think about him becoming humanity, you know, this is the primary. This, you would, it's arguably the central doctrine of Christianity that God became humanity, that he entered the universe. Okay, if God is the bucket that holds the universe together. Uh, the argument that was brought up was, how can God enter the universe? He can no more become human than a bucket can contain itself. Because how can a bucket contain itself? Well, it just can't. It would destroy... His, uh, the idea that came about was that, well, it would destroy everything about the universe if God became man. Okay? Yeah? We go scientific, it's atom smashing, they're all atoms. They're all electrons, small units. So, really, nothing the same. It's all part of this planet. It's all the same. Bring up an interesting thing with the atoms we're going to get to. You make an interesting point. Don't let me forget to get back to that. Okay. Um, so anyway, Isaac Newton comes along. He has this idea that the universe does not have its own innate rationality, but it's the, that rationality is imposed on it from the outside. So then Immanuel Kant thinks, okay, well, if the universe does not have its own rationality, then that means that um, I can't really know it well, right? Because we have to know, there has to be order for us to know something. So then he had this idea that, well, there was, um, there was no way to know the thing as it's in itself. He believed that um, our minds take in sensory information, and then he believed that we actually had these innate categories in the mind that actively shaped information as it came in. So I, um, in this way, I don't have, there is no such thing as a table, so to speak. There is an essence that my mind takes in, and I already have an idea of a table in my mind. And so when the table, the information comes into my mind, my mind says, that's a table. So whatever this is that I'm looking at, I don't really know it as it really is. I don't know the ding on seek, as he says, the object as it is in itself. I only know it as I perceive it to be. So what, what, what kind of dangers could this cause? If I'm, if I'm not knowing the thing in itself, if I'm only knowing it as my mind shapes it, then what, is, what does that do for knowledge? Knowledge Knowledge is what you make it to be then. This means then that the knowing subject, the person, is the center of knowledge, not the truth itself. Truth then becomes only subject and not objective. Absolutely right. And that, um, this guy right here, um, having the best intentions, Immanuel Kant probably caused more <laughs> problems for knowledge in general, specifically theological knowledge, than, um, than anyone else in the world. And, and like it or not, you have to take your stand either for or against Immanuel Kant. When you're talking about the truth of Scripture, when you're talking about knowledge at all, you have to mention Kant. You have to say, okay, I agree with Kant, or I think Kant 
had no idea what he was talking about. Um, but anyway, we have some serious issues here brought about by Kant. We're going to see how he has affected theology. Any comments, any questions on this so far? Is this making sense? Because this is kind of central to understanding liberal theology in the past 200 years. Whether or not postmodern thinkers realize it or not, that's the postmodern mindset right there, Immanuel hmm. Kant, because there is no absolute truth. Everything is relative. Your truth is your truth, mine is mine. That whole mindset that uh, how dare you be so narrow to say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Why can't it also, alongside that, include blah, blah. Krishna or Buddha yeah, or whatever, right. Yeah, and that's, um, now Kant maybe would have had an idea of belief that there was such a thing as a, um, he might argue for an absolute, but that you can't know it. So, and that's, and that's actually where the postmodern view emerged out of. I mean, this was the roots of modernity itself. And so postmodernity has looked at it and says, well, we're, we're just going to say that there's no absolute either. That not only can you not know it, but it probably doesn't exist at all. Um, and uh, there were, yeah. One of the important points here is that there's nothing new under the sun. And that, you know, when you look at some of these new theologies, such as modern or postmodernism, and they're coming up saying, we have a new way of understanding things. It's not. It's something that you package and put a different label on it and change some of the words, but it's the same thing down there. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's important sometimes to go do a little bit of archaeology, so to speak, in theology to find out what has gone on before, because there's nothing new. It's just different stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I don't know if you really say it's subject matter like the font, because if you look at how is it that some people who live in, let's say, cultures totally void from knowledge of him, yet they still perceive the same moral truth that the Bible has projected for years. If there wasn't a grand scheme of the grand person who printed that on a person, how would they know the difference? It's not subject to your view, but there's already something pre-existing written on you because you were planned out. You're bringing up um, the early parts of Romans where Paul is arguing for, you know, the idea that we, everybody has this moral idea, why don't, why don't we live up to it? And actually, Immanuel Kant actually wrote a whole book on that subject where he was essentially saying, um, well, I have this idea of, he believed, well, we couldn't really know what right and wrong was. So he said, we always had to act on the maxim that what I'm doing right now, do I wish that it be made an absolute moral law? for everyone. So I use the illustration, I was, I was talking about how I liked caramello bars in a class one time and I was saying, you know, I could use the illustration and say, all right, I want this caramello bar, I'm walking through convenience, I want a caramello bar. I could say, I could steal the caramello bar, right? I could. But then under Kant's view, I would have to think, all right, I don't think about whether or not I'm going to be eternally punished for that or anything like that. I think, all right, do I wish that everyone <coughs> at all times, steal caramello bars. So I have to think, all right, well, if everybody stole caramello bars, then caramello would go out of business. They would stop making caramello bars. This would be bad. You know what? I'm not going to steal the caramello bar. I'm going to decide that if I could make the choice, I would make it a universal law that caramello bars not be stolen. Okay, and this is how he went about doing morality. So he kind of cheapened it in a, in, a, in a way, but he believed that that's how we had to operate. And then essentially he, he turned himself into a work salvation. But he believed, even then, that Jesus was the absolute representation 
of the perfect moral life. And what we're going to see with a lot of these guys, for some reason, they still want to, they want to take their theology and make Jesus into that. Okay? We're going to see this with Friedrich Schleiermacher here. That's my favorite theological name. Okay? I don't like this guy at all, but I love saying Schleiermacher. Um, we had, when, I was in, uh, when I was in theology, we had to be able to spell this guy's name on our, on our essay test. So like, I was practicing Schleiermacher, so I can't spell like dessert. I don't know which one has two S's, which one has, doesn't. But man, I can spell Schleiermacher. Anyway, Friedrich Schleiermacher comes along, and here we've had Immanuel Kant who said, all right, you can't know objective truth because your mind shapes it. So Schleiermacher says, well, how are we going to know God? Because everything about God has come along. It's, you know, he's, given us, he's given us general revelation. We can look at the universe, and he's given us scripture, and he's given us Christ. And so Friedrich Schleiermacher is like, well, well, if none of those things count anymore, then I know emotion. I'm going to know God based on religious feeling. And essentially, this is what he said. He said, I'm just going to experience God. I'm going to think about the fact that I'm absolutely dependent on him. And then I'm going to reflect on that, and that's going to be theology. So he might take communion, though it has no objective theological truth for him, it might make him feel dependent on God. So he would say, well, that would have some value. And he might read scripture, not because he gets any truth from it, but because he kind of feels good about himself when he does it. Okay? This is the root of theological liberalism. This idea that God is not strong enough to reveal himself objectively to man. And when I say objectively, I mean God is not strong enough in, in this view to say, Josh, I am God. I love you. You need to you know, repent of your sins and accept my son. You know, this is, this is truth. This is phrases that are easy to understand. Under, under Friedrich Schleiermacher's view, God's not strong enough to do that. And so God's got to just kind of warm your heart up a little bit and make you feel a little bit better when, you know, when you do something good. Oh, you know, it's my child. He feels good. Um, it is tragic how much of this has found its way into even evangelical circles. Have you ever had that um, discussion with somebody where you're, at least I have, where we're talking about a theological truth and I say, well, this is what the Word of God says. And someone says, well, I just don't like that. No, I just don't think so. I don't feel like that's true. I'm like, well... I don't really care whether you feel like it's true. This is how God has objectively revealed himself. Now think about this. Uh, now, I think sometimes we swing the pendulum in the other direction sometimes and we scorn emotion. And I think that's, that's wrong, too. Because God has given us emotions. It's a good thing. But we need to keep this in mind, that our emotional reactions are just that. God is not necessarily speaking to us through our emotions. We have an emotional reaction possibly to things he does or things he says. That emotional reaction means nothing for theology. Okay, I want you to keep this in mind. Because think about this. There are times when I've been told something about God that was true. But when I first heard it, it made me angry. It's because my emotions are flawed. My emotions react in a way that is either proper or improper. Often improper because my emotions are flawed. So when someone tries to tell me, well, doesn't that feel like the right thing to do? I can say, well, maybe, but it certainly doesn't matter whether it feels like the right thing to do or not. It matters what God has said. I've, I've seen this so much in, in, in churches where we'll say, well, let's do what we feel like is the best thing, because this seems like the nice thing, but it's not necessarily the true thing. Yeah? 
conscience if you want to confirm what you think is true with the Bible and justify it? Oh yeah, let the Bible justify. I mean, let the Word of God support it or or crash it down. Absolutely right. Yeah, there are even things that seem nice. You know, it seems you know. And sometimes you'll have uh, I've had discussions about various theological topics. Somebody says, "Well, that doesn't this doesn't seem right." And, well, it's what God says to do. You know, it's important. Yeah. You see this in the charismatic movement, mm-hmm. where a lot of times truth is irrelevant. The problem is my experience. Mm-hmm. I have conversations with people. Well, the Bible says this. Well, I had this emotional experience. That's what the Bible's not right. And what you do is you go down the emotions track. And, um, yeah. Yep. Every single time. And this is this is where we see all all of liberal theology essentially find its finds its roots really in Kant. But here, where they say, all right, we're going to focus on the feeling, which is. I left a church one time over a theological issue, and the, the big issue was that I was not being a nice guy. And I'm like, well, this is what the Word of God says. Well, but that's not very nice. So, that's not all right. Well, all right. Well, see you later. You know, that's the, the word would maybe be um, piety, and that was what Friedrich Schleiermacher would have had his roots in that. The idea that, like, well... The, the, the feel-good emotions and kind of that they label that as spirituality. Um, I guess they catch the phrase of, uh, I don't know, like a, you know, God thing, but I'm very spiritual. Yeah. I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. You know, and you should say that. Say, you know, I really don't understand what you mean by that. What does that mean, that you're spiritual but you're not really into? First start, I don't understand. Yeah. Oh, to see a, a clear, <coughs> absolute dividing line between being religious, which scares people who don't want to be accountable to God, and people who maybe had negative experiences within the institutionalized church, as they like to put it. But yet, they don't want to think of themselves as, 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 I don't know, pagan or Mm. something. And they want to hold on to a sort of Keeps it uh, ambiguous. It keeps it ambiguous yeah. and it keeps, therefore, me in control. So oh, yeah. I have created God in my image because I mm-hmm. want to see a new Here then, and any time we, we overemphasize God's imminence and, and overemphasize essentially subjectivity and us knowing him, we're saying God's not strong enough to reveal himself objectively, so I have to make my opinion about him. Okay? So then, in, in, in overemphasizing God's imminence, we make him essentially part of creation and thus we weaken him. And that's essentially what Schleiermacher had to say. Well, God had to move through feelings because he couldn't reveal himself objectively. He was imminent in the universe. And here with Tillich, 
He sees God not as a, as a being of the universe, but as being itself. He essentially says God is existence. Okay? And so he believes that God is, um, is kind of, a, kind of this pantheistic view that God is present in everything. Kind of calls him the depth, the d- dimension, or whatever. So and he believes that the only way that the depth dimension, so to speak, could break through and connect with you was through religious symbols. So he believed that um, you know, we would maybe have a cross. Well, the cross, he believed, was somehow deeply connected to God, although he would not necessarily call him God, to the depth dimension. And so when you have that cross, when you look on that cross, you connect. And you have this, um, this existential experience where you become more authentic. Sounds kind of lame, doesn't it? It is kind of lame, honestly. This, but this kind of plays in a lot with, have you ever noticed how somebody can be living completely pagan? They've got a crucifix in their house, facing the front door or whatever, and they feel really good about that. They're like, things are cool, because i got my crucifix. Connected to a religious symbol, thinking that gives them some kind of connection to God. Or, or we see how Madonna wears a cross, and you know, she feels good about that, doesn't mind that she's living an absolutely pagan lifestyle, but she's got that cross, in good shape. Um, we see this a lot. People, people connect with a thing. You know, unfortunately, I think even people sometimes tie this idea to the physical printed Bible. And they'll think that that has some type of spiritual power. Well, I mean, the Word of God has power, but it's, that is a printed thing made of paper and ink and bound in leather. Um, touching it does not heal me. Touching it doesn't do anything miraculous. It doesn't necessarily keep demons away or anything like that. Um, we get into trouble when we start overemphasizing a symbol uh, as being something else. Was there a question or a comment? Um, what would you say then to Catholics? Rosary. You know, I I'm not Catholic. I don't know a whole lot about rosaries, but I know that there there's been times there are some circles where that's used to be just like it's a reminder. You know, I'm praying for this. I'm thinking about this. I'm going through it. There are other times where I think it can have that symbolism thing. And I've talked to different people who have different theologies tied to it. So I don't know enough about the actual doctrine on it to be able to say anything. It's interesting, huh? That's pretty nice. Do you know really what that represents? Yeah. Yes? I think what you're really saying about that one is religious symbol is like perfection. It's almost like the uh, witch doctor type mentality. A little bit. Yeah. Is, it, is there really a strong movement? Uh, can't say there's a movement. No. I think there are some who tie into Tillich's theology. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say, well, I mean, in some circles, yes, maybe. Catholicism. Catholicism would have it. Um, maybe not in evangelical circles very much. Hmm. Um, and I, I should point out, Tillich didn't necessarily have the whole protection idea about it. He saw it more as an existential thing, that by experiencing this religious symbol, it somehow made me... It gave me an existential experience that made me more like I'm supposed to be, or... It's, and honestly, in, when we start talking about existentialism, it's very ambiguous. It doesn't necessarily make sense. They use weird words and 
they don't believe in objectivity fully, and so that's part of why it's strange. I want to very quickly gloss over process theory here because we don't have a lot of time. Process theory has a lot of different names connected to it, but it has this idea that God is in process with the universe, growing and changing. Okay? The reason why I wanted to bring this up, in this, God's power is limited. He has to kind of allow human beings to work, and he kind of encourages them or warms their heart to do certain things. But then as the universe changes because of human activity, then they believe that God changes also, that he is in growth with the universe. Now, the open theists would not necessarily say, hey, we're process theory people, but they believe that God is not sovereign over the future. They believe that God is surprised sometimes when things happen. Um, the idea that God is not sovereign over the future, things happen, God says, oh, we've got to do something about that now. In God's knowledge changing, he is essentially growing under that theology. So process theory plays in a lot with this. And, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of the emergent church guys, of course, would not necessarily claim process theory, but they sure have a lot of ties to it. They have this idea, they'll define theology based on what God knows rather than who he is. And so, like, for instance, uh, Brian McLaren says, in contrast, this is orthodoxy in this book, which is a generous orthodoxy, the book he wrote, orthodoxy in this book may mean something more like what God knows, some of which we believe a little, some of which they believe a little and about which we all have a whole lot to learn while we sit around singing Kumbaya and smoking ganj. Um, yeah, this is, kind of, uh, this is kind of this idea that God is not who he is. God is what he knows. Okay? This is very dangerous. And I'll be quite honest with you, Ron McLaren is a heretic, um, and uh, he is drawing people away. Stay away. Um, I, I wouldn't encourage you, to, I mean, if, uh, you could read his book for purposes of, uh, of arguing against it, possibly, but um, unless something changes, he is, uh, he is definitely on a fast train to hell. <laughs> Say that as nicely as possible. All right, anyway, towards a biblical view of eminence, um, there's a couple of passages. Could I have somebody, we're, we don't have a whole lot of time, could I have somebody look up Psalm 139, 7 through 16? Um, I have a volunteer. Did I see a hand? You got it? All right. Could I have another person um, look at... Um, you know what? I'm not going to look up all of these. Uh, could I have someone else read Ephesians 4, 6? All right. All right. And um, another person, John 1. All right. All right. Are, we, are you ready with uh, Psalm 139? Go for it. Yeah. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I walk to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What does it say about God's eminence? Say it, say it out loud, honey. He's everywhere, absolutely. 
Um, this, is, this is the doctrine of eminence, that God is everywhere. Now, the, we might say, sometimes we'll say that, well, isn't God in heaven? There is a sense in which he is everywhere, but his glory is not fully revealed everywhere. His Shekinah glory is not fully revealed everywhere. So we talk about the fact that God's present everywhere. He's not necessarily, his presence is not necessarily manifested everywhere. So that's a whole other thing we'll have to talk about later. Um, who had, um, what was the next one? Ephesians 4, 6? Go for it, Sammy. If you don't mind, four, four through six. Go for it, yeah. Uh, there is one body and one spirit, as you are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Mm-hmm. Well, what is this necessarily saying? Maybe not necessarily taking us somewhere too much new, but what does this necessarily say about the uh, eminence of God? Was that a hand, Alan? Or were you just waving? What is this... Only in slight contrast to what we just read. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, seems to be used in a slightly different context, but it's still emphasizing his presence everywhere. This is good news. All right, um, what was the last one we had? Somebody reading John 1. Um, now, just so we're reviewing, it's made it clear God is present everywhere. He sees everything everywhere. Um, used here that he's overall in all and through all. Seems to be focused specifically um, on the body of Christ there. Um, let's read John 1, what I would consider to be central here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um. Can you um, go like three verses in, I think? Yes. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Can I pause you there and then have you jump to verse 14 now? Sorry. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Interesting, the use of the phrase, we saw his glory. He actually entered the universe and became human flesh for us to know him. This is a, it's a pretty significant form of eminence here. Against, against the whole idea that God, you know, in, in Isaac Newton's field, that against the idea that God can't enter the universe, Jesus Christ did and became human flesh. And against the idea of Immanuel Kant, that we can't know things as they really are, what does it say in verse 14? It says... We beheld His glory. Um, we have seen His glory. Sorry, I used the phrase wrong. That's the NIV. Oh, yes. The NIV. NIV. Yeah. Good stuff. Seen His glory. This is good news. This is against Kant, against the, uh, the liberals, that Jesus Christ came and objectively revealed God to human beings. This is good news. Any comments on this before we move past eminence and transcendence? Yes. Often, yeah. But I think the systems of theology have diminished the character of God. Are there attempts to acknowledge their spirituality but avoid accountability? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in some sense, it is the original lie. It sets up, we're setting up man as the supreme authority. It's kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden saying, I'm going to be like God because I eat this fruit. Um, it's pride. It's disobedience in pride. It's um, 
but yeah, it's it's man wants to man wants to take something God has designed and then twist it to our own ends. We want to say, oh, we're spiritual. Let's not have to be accountable though, because I. Yeah, because we're fallen nature. Yeah, we have that desire to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it requires his intervention to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You can also look at there's a yesterday in Romans 36, chapter 8, was just as in Britain, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, and that's basically these people are leading people to, to look at it. But as Christians, we are to help be reflection of what God's grace is on us and show people that that's not the right path. They need to look past that and look at where mm-hmm. they need to be. Teach the truth. Absolutely. Yeah, speaking of the glory, uh, there are a few profound places in Scripture, first in Genesis, where the glory is the light, meaning the first mention of the creation process by God, let, uh, let there be light, and there was light. However, that was on day one. It wasn't until day four until the sun, moon, and stars were created. So the light was the Shekinah light for the first three days, and that is further backed up in Revelation, where in chapters uh, uh, 22, or 21 and 22, at least 22 for sure, is talking about Jesus being the light. There will be no need of the sun or the moon. Mm-hmm. Jesus will be the light of the city. And there is the Old Testament... Uh, uh, I think still in Genesis, but where Moses wasn't allowed to see God, only the backside, because it would have. And finally, the glorified body that we will have is the state in which we will have to be in order to be present. And finally, the seraphim who had to be fire angels because they had to be made of a substance that would allow them to be around the throne of God, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Uh, The glory of God is profound. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's where it gets exciting in Romans where we talk about the glorification of our of our bodies into that form that to be able to experience that or or be there and not be burned up immediately. It's exciting. Um, a couple of quick notes before we move on to transcendence, which we're going to try to move through quickly. Um, while God is eminent, he is present and at work in creation, as scripture affirms, he is also distinct from creation. So we talked about some of these views kind of made God as part of the universe, uh, pantheistically. Uh, he's also di- he is distinct from the universe. He is not the universe. Uh, he is present in it. But it is not him. The universe is a created reality that is distinct from him. He is personal and transcendent while active in the universe. Um, one of my favorite professors, Dr. John Douglas Morrison, he makes the comment, he says, there is nothing more natural for the natural than the supernatural. God has created this universe in such a way for him to reveal himself in it. Um, so it's against uh, Isaac Newton's idea that the universe is closed off from God. Um, God designed the universe to reveal himself in it. So if he wants to enter it in the, in the form of Christ, well, then he can. Anyway, transcendence. Transcendence embodies the concept that God is infinitely beyond his creation. He is wholly other and not bound by created realities. 
Uh, when creation is subtracted from the universe, God is still there. He is transcendent overall existence. Okay, this is an interesting thing. Now, what we're going to see here is the idea of transcendent says that God is wholly other. What we find often when people misunderstand transcendence, usually it has to do with them misdefining it. Okay, what you'll see is someone says, okay, God is transcendent. That means he's utterly above. And so they think, okay, that means God is really, really far away from earth. Or that's the way it was maybe thought of. Or maybe even in Isaac Newton's view, it thinks, they think, he thinks of God as like, well, God's holding the universe together. So he's on the outside, we're on the inside. Or maybe it's thought of as like, well, God is just really, really way back in time. He started everything, but now he's dead. And now we're here. Have you noticed that in all of those ways, in all those misrepresentations of transcendence, they're defining God's transcendence based on either space or time. They're either saying God is far away, or he is far away in time. He's distant in time. What does this do? What fundamental problem does that misdefinition call bring? What, 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 where does that come from? Yeah. Can we see here how what's happening is we are we are defining God based on created realities. We're saying, well, God's far away. Well, that doesn't work because God is not bound by space. He's just simply not. Alan uses the uh, the description of the box that there's everything that's inside the box is created: angels, time, space. Matter, all of these things in the box. And God just isn't in that box. Okay? So this is what I want us to keep in mind. When we're talking about transcendence, don't think about, okay, that means God's really far away. It means God is something else. He is wholly other, so to speak. So keep that in mind. Now, deism came about mostly as a result of Isaac Newton's work. Can we see here that even, even false views of transcendence, just like the false views of eminence, often came about from Isaac Newton and others. So are false views of transcendence. Deism was the idea that God kind of uh, made the universe and then turned it loose. You know, he just said, here, there you go. Um, doesn't stay actively involved in it because he can't, because he's holding it together from the outside. Um, but it sees God as just outside of creation. Not something different, but just outside of it. Um, many founding fathers, I think sometimes this gets overemphasized. Some people think, well, hey, see, uh, so-and-so was a deist. Well, then we find out, so that so-and-so prayed, and that doesn't make him a very good deist because prayer says God can hear me and he's going to take action as a result of my prayer. Um, though uh, many were. I think you could argue that Thomas Jefferson was a, uh, was a deist. Um, a lot of modernity people, a lot of post-enlightenment guys were deists, unfortunately. Um, essentially, deism sees God as separated from the universe dualistically. He just can't enter it. Um, he is, in that sense, kind of weak. Um, but normally, though, deism relies on the fact that um, they see the universe as a very uh, organized system of cause and effect. Um, that this happens and then this happens. And every time this happens, that happens. Um, very, very mechanistic view of the universe, and then the idea is, well, God can't enter the universe to do anything because he'd mess up the machine, right? Um, interestingly enough, a lot of, uh, I think we've talked about this, my thesis deals with um, the fact that Isaac Newton's physics have kind of been hidden away since, or have kind of been, or they need to be forgotten, but, uh, but since Albert Einstein has come along and says, you know, the universe doesn't necessarily operate like that. 
Um, he, Isaac Newton saw space as Albert Einstein had this idea that, well, the universe kind of has its own order. And things, space is not a box, but space is made as, as we relate to each other. You know, my hand is here. It moves over here. It made room for itself over there. And it moved over here. made room for itself to be over there. You know, I didn't... Very simplified version of it. But, uh, but as, as Albert Einstein has kind of changed the idea of knowledge of this, now everything's annual concept. Uh, so many... Um, of physics and all that kind of stuff. And now, leaning to the subject of theism, nobody wants to talk about it. Um, uh, one of the great, uh, great atheistic philosophers of our day, Anthony Thomas, recently become a theist because he said, I had to go where the evidence led me. And the evidence is towards theism. He's not really a Christian, but he's one of theists. This and, and guys like this is his name, this whole this is a machine of cause and effect. He's saying really interesting things are happening as I'm studying subatomic physics, um, finding out what the universe could happen. If there was some being in charge of the universe, then it would be really easy for him to do virgin births. He even he has become a theist. He has become actually a Christian based on his physics. It's a little weird, but um, he has gone for the uh, Jesus author, also the the, the universe, but to change that God that this universe is made for God to control. Um, it's really funny. Some of them think like, well, at the subatomic level, the universe doesn't really make sense. It seems like there's some force holding it together. I mean, they say these ridiculous things. It's funny. Because he's just utterly transcendent. That movie, yeah, yeah, and you argue that that, um, Neo is kind of painted as a Christ figure, very loose. Of course, it's amalgamation of a lot of theology, but there's at least an interesting analogy in that. Um, So anyway, transcendence. I'm going to try to rush us out of here quickly. Um, Karl Barth comes along. So we've talked about the uh, eminence views of Friedrich Schleiermacher. 
and how he kind of saw that God moved through religious feelings. So all of these liberal theologians came out in the idea of a Friedrich Schleiermacher. And so the idea was, well, man knows things. Man is the center of knowledge. Man's got to be basically good, right? You know, so, we're, so there's this idea that man is really good and that the universe is going to keep getting better as we kind of feel dependent on God and happy things and have happy thoughts and do nice things for each other. And the universe is just going just to keep getting better. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome, man. It's going to be wonderful. And so then came World War I. Okay? And then all of a sudden there was all these atrocities being caused by human beings and these questions start coming up like, maybe human beings aren't as good as we thought they were. And then World War II came along and just totally obliterated any idea. Okay? Interestingly enough, right at the, right at the turn of the century, we have this guy, Karl Barth, who's being trained in theological liberalism. All this Friedrich Schleiermacher stuff, he's right on board with it. And then all of a sudden, he's in Germany, center of theology for the world. And all of his, and all of his liberal theologian leaders... When Kaiser Wilhelm comes along and says, I'm going to have this really aggressive war policy and I want you to sign on, all of these guys say, okay. And they deny all of their basic feel-good theology to sign on with this warmonger. And Karl Barth looks at this and he says, this is just wrong, man. Why do I want to be involved in a theology that so easily gives up everything just to go on with whatever the political popularity of the day was? And so he starts going about this idea that maybe man really is depraved. Maybe man's not basically good. Maybe we're evil. And then he starts thinking, and maybe God is not this imminent force. Maybe he really is utterly transcendent. And maybe we should think about that. And then he starts thinking, maybe God really has revealed himself to human beings. Now, these are pretty intense things. Now, now mind you, Karl Barth was not perfect. He, had a lot, he still had a holdover from a lot of his theology. But he comes along and he says... You know what? God's transcendent. We need to recognize that. And actually, I think he got more orthodox as time went along. He actually eventually would say that Scripture could at least become God's Word, stretching a little bit, but he was at least getting somewhere. He was, <laughs> wasn't perfect, but he came about, he, and, and to the academic world, he says, we have to change the way we think about theology. God can reveal himself. He has revealed himself. Man is evil. We need God. Now, he was maybe overemphasized a little bit on the side of transcendence because he, he only believed that miracles could happen now and then. He didn't believe that God was actively involved in creation, but man, he brought things a long way. And there's been a, a slight, very slight turnaround uh, in the theological realm as we look at people like Karl uh, Barth. He brought about this idea of what he called neo-orthodoxy, that, man, we at least turned away from liberalism a little bit and started thinking about God's transcendence and human depravity. Um, so anyway, that was Karl Barth. Can we see though, Karl Barth? Man, we can't can't be necessarily say he was perfect, but we're, we can be thankful that he did some interesting things. Now, interesting. As we brought this time up, as as Karl Barth was coming along neo orthodoxy, there was a resurgence in studying Soren Kierkegaard. Okay, Soren Kierkegaard had come and gone, was was dead, long dead. But all of a sudden, as we started thinking about transcendence more, people started thinking about Soren Kierkegaard because he believed in the transcendence of God. And he had some of this idea of human depravity and sin and things like that. So he comes along, or I should say he was already along, now they're restudying him. Um, Kierkegaard believed in, in the transcendence of God, but he, he had this idea that, well, God wasn't quite powerful enough to reveal himself in the universe. 
So we had to make a leap of faith. I'm so radically giving the basics of this. It's much more complicated, but we don't have a whole lot of time. Um, Kierkegaard essentially says, well, I can't know everything I need to know, so I'm just going to have to take a leap of faith. I'm going to just have to just jump. Okay? Have you ever heard this phrase, leap of faith, used in relation to spirituality? In in relation even to accepting Christ, possibly. Okay? This ties in very heavily with Soren Kierkegaard. And I I want to encourage you that it's not necessarily a good idea. Because think about this. Either God is powerful enough to reveal himself to you, or he is not. God is not going to stand over here with you blindfolded and say, I just want you to just jump. Just, just do it. You know, I'm not going to show myself to you. You're just going to have to just do it on your own. No, we have a theology that says... God entered the universe, revealed himself to human beings in the form of Jesus Christ. He gave us the written word of God, inspired, so that we could know him. We have all the evidence we need. We have wonderful extra-biblical evidence that God exists. We have extra-biblical evidence of the resurrection. We have support from here and there. We have scripture itself, which is the, which is the most important. Where in this, in this theology does it say anything about you taking a blind leap of faith? We have cheapened the revelation of God by telling people, you just need to have faith. You need to have faith because God has given you evidence. You don't need to have faith out of some blind leap. Um, so I want, us, I want us to be cautious because we have, we, have, we have hurt theology in some ways by saying, you know, when somebody's doubting and we just say, oh, just don't worry about that, just, you just need to have faith. Or, or we see this in some of the charismatic movement where they say, just have, if you have enough faith, everything will be fine. Well, God gives us evidence. And faith, yes. But faith, not blind, but based on God's objective revelation. It's good news. Yeah. We were blind and made to see. Absolutely right. He made us see. Yeah. Just to interject, I'm not sure why we're trying to hurry up the close. I mentioned this to Al last class. Why are we trying to close when church doesn't start till 11 o'clock? Why don't we go at least until 22 at least? Can we get away with that? If we can go to 22, let's do it. Because that will give me just enough time. It's perfect. Um, perfect, perfect. Alright, well that's good because we just got a few more slides here. We're in good shape.
Right. But that faith is on that revelation that we have evidence absolutely. is sound. And that's, that's absolutely, absolutely right that we don't, we don't have to say, all right, let's get this scientific thing fits up with the Word of God. And then if it doesn't, oh no. We, just, we, we have evidence that the Word of God is true. And so whatever God says about something, we say, well, that's, that's how it is. Right. And well, so, we're not yeah. um, we accept it because he said it. And we, and we need to be careful with the use of the word proof. But we don't, we don't, we don't blindly say, when I'm, when I'm talking to someone in the coffee house on Tuesday night or, or on Sunday, I don't say, believe this because the Bible said it. Because they have no, no reason to believe that the Bible is true. So I, I, I lay down evidence that the word of God is true. Say well, it meets up with historical record criteria. You know, it, it stands as a reliable historical document, and and we have evidence that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and that He commissioned the apostles to write it. We give evidence; can't absolutely prove it, but we have to have evidence. We have to give evidence to be um, epistemologically sound. We have to say this is evidence. Um, of course, when it comes to something like sound waves holding up the the earth, we can say, well, okay, maybe you know, maybe the. Uh, Maybe there is now scientific evidence that it's done, you know, that's done a certain way and that, that maybe lines up with a certain interpretation of Scripture. We can say that's really cool. But um, we can just be excited about that and say, yeah, well, we already knew that God spoke the universe into existence. So thanks for catching up with us, guys. Um, but we're, we're, we see that all the time. We see that in, in historical archaeology. We find, you know, cities that they didn't believe existed that Scripture mentioned. And then all of a sudden they find it. And we're like, all right, guys, it's old news to us. But cool, I'm glad you're excited about it, you know. Um, so yeah, there's a sense in which we have faith based on evidence, um, not blind faith, but based on evidence. And then you know we can just be excited when when science catches up. We can say, cool. Now, one of these days you might in you know cure the common cold, and that'll be great. You know. Evidence. Now, I think sometimes we, we talk about proof. We throw around that word proof. Um, we need to be so cautious with that. There is evidence. We have good evidence. We have evidence that would stand in court. We have evidence that far outweighs um, critics. But um, it's evidence. And you could say that all of this is a big computer program, and we've been fooled and completely. Well, that's ridiculous. So we don't. You know, we don't. We don't say. Well, what if it was magical bunny? that sneezed, and that's how we got the earth. We could say, okay, maybe that's possible. We can't prove, but we can say, evidentially, that doesn't make sense. We have evidence towards the contrary. We're going to go where the evidence leads, as Anthony Flew said. Yeah. You can give evidence. You can say, I did this nice thing for him, or I said this nice thing about him. You can't absolutely prove it. Mm-hmm. Right on. Let's, let's look at Rudolf Boltmann here. I think he might be the last guy we're talking about. Rudolf Boltmann. Um, I love how these false teachers always have interesting names. Um, Rudolf Boltmann comes along, and he says, we have a scientific worldview. You know, he, he relied heavily on Isaac Newton, and he says, we have a scientific worldview of cause and effect. We know... We know that people don't raise from the dead. We know that Red Seas don't part in half miraculously. Miracles don't happen. He just ruled it out based on 
scientific worldview. He says, now, the New Testament was written. He was a New Testament professor. He says, the New Testament was written with people with a mythological worldview. So they didn't understand things were going on. So they had to write mythologically and put in all these things about gods and things like that. So, so that doesn't make sense for us who have a much more enlightened scientific worldview. I call this, or C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. Like, now that it's 2,000 years later, we know that they were wrong. Um, you know, snobbery. Um, so he says scientific worldview. So he says, but, but since he was a New Testament professor, he had to justify his existence academically. So he, he says, so we have to reinterpret the New Testament somehow so that it's worthwhile to us. Because right now it makes no sense to the scientific worldview. So he interpreted it into these uh, existential terms. And he says, okay, okay, so scripture says that Jesus rose from the dead. We have to demythologize that. Okay, he says, all right, so we've got to take all the mythology. That's a miracle. We can't have miracles. So let's say this. Maybe uh, Jesus... I know. He rose spiritually into the gospel message. Doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't it feel good? Yeah, that's what we'll say. Miracle didn't happen, but it, the miracle is in your heart. You know, have, you ever, have you ever heard crap like that? And they're like, oh, but the miracle about Jesus' resurrection is in your heart. Oh, crap. Either Jesus rose from the dead bodily, or I am destined to die. Okay? And I'm sorry, but if, if all I've got is this magical feel-good thing that Jesus rose from the, rose into the, into this gospel message, then I don't want it. Okay? If, if we're gonna, if we're gonna say that it's all mythology, it doesn't make any real sense, and Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, then why bother? That's ridiculous. This is, once again, one saying, well, there's really something interesting about Jesus, so I'm gonna take my philosophical system, and I'm just gonna try to make Jesus like that. We saw it with Kant. We saw it with Schleiermacher. We saw it with Boltmann. He is a lot. I'm, I'm emphasizing the feeling part of it. He was more existential. The idea that like I'm going to become an authentic person. Actually, an interesting thought. He believed that like man was kind of separated from himself. But in the gospel, and this whole knowledge of Jesus being raised from the dead into the kerygma, as he said, he believed that somehow when we hear the gospel message then we are, we, are, we are encouraged to be ourselves. Yeah, crazy, huh? The idea that we are becoming an authentic... Have you ever heard somebody talk about being um, self-actualized or something like that? There are certain uh, contexts in where it has a different meaning, but this idea that like, I'm going to be being as I'm supposed to be, and so I'm going to take action in the universe. And that's, uh, that's kind of what he, he read about. And there was no real value to the resurrection other than it helps you remember that you need to take action. And by the way, in existential theology or philosophy, it doesn't really matter what action you take. Um, many existential philosophers um, would have brought about, well, whatever you do, as long as you're taking action in the universe to authenticate yourself. So they could say, you could help an elderly woman across the street, and then you would be taking action, you would be authenticated. Or you could beat her to death, and you would be taking action, and then you would be authenticated. And in that realm, there is no morality, so it really doesn't matter whether you beat her to death or whether you help her across the street. You're actualizing yourself either way, so good job. Um, yeah, pretty scary, huh? Um, now, Bultmann wouldn't necessarily say it that way, but existentialist. So this is scary. I want, to, I want us to bring up a few things. Can you see how what happens when we say, all right, well, God is 
if we, on, the, on the imminent side, if we say that God is not powerful enough to reveal himself, we say he has to move through feeling, or he's part of the universe and he's just kind of in process with it, if we say anything like that, then we weaken God. And if in transcendence, if we misunderstand that and say that he's really, really far away or something like that, well, we misunderstand transcendence. We have to recognize that God is distinct from creation, and yet he is active in it. He is revealing himself objectively to us. This is good news. There's some scriptures on here. I encourage you to look them up later. Um, but we must never emphasize transcendence at the expense of eminence. God is far higher than man. If human opinion does not establish truth, we reach God on our, We cannot reach God on our own. He must reveal himself to us. Um, we should res- respond with uh, awe. A couple of things. We, um, we have C- CDs in the bookstore if you're looking to get s- copies of the lectures. Um, also, be sure to sign the, uh, the attendance sheet. And um, let's close in prayer quickly. Father, thank you for the chance to be together, to study your word. Um, I pray that tonight, today we would recognize, uh, we would we'd be attentive to the truth of your word, comforted in the fact that you are a powerful God who reveals yourself objectively. I don't have to rely on human feeling or existential action. I don't have to take a leap of faith. You have revealed yourself to me objectively. And I thank you for that and I praise you for it. And God, I pray that we would be wise as false teachers try to make comments that we would, uh, hopefully today's lecture will help us to recognize when false teaching creeps up. We love you. I pray that you would be glorified in us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all very much. Have a good day. So you can remember, I was in trouble with that.